want to start, this is something I want us to do together as we begin Sunday school um, during this season. Um, I want us to start by praying some psalms together. Y'all know how important that is to me. So in the back of your hymnal, you may not know this, but back of your hymnal, all the psalms are there, um, which is great. And they're already like delineated for us to pray responsively, which is perfect. So turn to page 832 in a hymnal. And we'll do the psalms that were appointed for yesterday for our church uh, readings. Um, Psalms 126 to 131. These are, of course, part of the psalms of ascent that we preach through this summer. These are certainly appropriate psalms to prepare for worship on the Lord's Day. So I'll pray the first um, unbolded um, verse, and then you all will respond with the bolded part, and we'll go through these psalms in that manner. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Bless, I'm sorry, Psalm 128. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. Peace be upon Israel. Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. With the reaper, with it the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. 
If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Psalm 131. My heart is not proud, O Lord, my eyes are not haughty. But I have stilled and quieted my soul. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen. Father, indeed, this Lord's Day, um, we are grateful um, for your love, for your care for us, even as we have prayed these psalms together that recall um, your faithfulness and your goodness. And Father, this day we pray, indeed, that our soul um, would be like a weaned child within us, um, that we um, come to you in that manner, Father, Um, when we come to your word, even as we study and begin to talk about your law today, that we would be like uh, weaned children with our mother, um, who trust, um, who obey, um, who look um, to you um, for all that we need. Uh, We pray this, Father, and I pray for your blessing not only upon our Sunday school time now, but also in our worship um, in a little little time to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks, y'all. I love praying the Psalms with you. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Mike and Scott, will you all help pass these out? It's about half. And whatever leftovers you have, you can kind of put on the, the sound booth there. People will see it when they come in, maybe. Maybe put another stack over there in the chairs in the back. All right, friends. Um, so another thing I want to start with Sunday school, not only praying the Psalms, but I also want to just give us a little time to the beginning to discuss anything that has been taught recently in the church, um, particularly recent sermons. Um, If uh, there's something that um, we've been doing this sort of little Lord's Day series recently, um, and so if there's something that's been particularly helpful for you, I'd love to hear that. Um, If there's been something that has been challenging for you, I'd love to hear that. If you have a question about something that I've said, were taught, I'd love to hear that. I'd love for us to talk about that. So is there anything, anything that was been encouraging the past few weeks as we talked about the Lord's Day on our Sunday morning service? Anything that's been challenging or difficult? Anything that's confusing that needs clarification? Anything at all? No questions about the Sabbath. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> See if I answer all your questions today. Probably not. Nothing? Okay. Well, I'm going to warn you. I'm going to I'm going to give y'all lots of chances to talk. I want I want the Sunday school to be um I'm, I'm going to talk a fair bit, but I want there to be some dialogue and some some Q&A and some discussion and I'm going to plan to ask you about sermons um every week to just give you an opportunity. I'd love for us to to discuss these things together. Um and I know it may feel a little awkward in a group this size, but I think it's good. It's good for us to talk together. So um, we're beginning uh, a new series. It's actually a series that we did the first three weeks of um, 
in March of 20 or February of 2020 and the first Sunday in March in 2020 and then um, something happened which I think we all experienced together and we haven't had adult Sunday school since that time so I'm really delighted today to be coming back um, with you and to have this chance for um, extended teaching which is such a benefit as a pastor just to have additional time um, to teach God's word to help you think through the Christian life um, even outside of Sunday morning um, formal worship. So I'm grateful for it. So um, the last uh, few weeks of February, first Sunday in March in 2020, we began a series on the Ten Commandments, and that's what we're going back to today. And I'm just going to start right at the beginning, um, like we did um, at that time. Um, so the, the goal here is to spend 12 weeks um, on the Ten Commandments. I'm going to do an introduction today to the law, to the Ten Commandments in general, and then we're going to have uh, a week apiece, basically, in each of the commandments and then there'll be a kind of concluding week um, to tie things together. So the goal is to be finished December 19th, which will be the last sort of Sunday school for this kind of quarter or whatever. Um, we'll not have Sunday school on the 26th. Um, so, so that's sort of an overview of where we're going. Um, we're going to have different teachers. I'm going to teach um, you know, a fair bit. Uh, Pastor Patrick's going to teach some, and I've invited each of our ruling elders um, also to um, take uh, a week as well, so you'll be hearing from them as well, um, just teaching on different commandments. Um, so it's going to be kind of a team talk course, but hopefully that will just be helpful for you to hear different perspectives, different teaching styles, different personalities, and um, all of those things. Um, so today I want to start with a um, couple things. Um, I want to show you two of the resources I plan to use. Um, the first one is this book by John Frame, which is you know, this is a great doorstop or, you know, workout device. Um, um, if you don't know who John Frame is, John Frame is one of my favorite contemporary theologians in the Reformed Church, um, Presbyterian Church today. Uh, I think he's been a, a great gift um, to Christ's church for the last, I don't know, 50 years or so now that he's been doing uh, ministry and teaching. Um, uh, John Frame has been a professor at different Reformed seminaries, Westminster in California, Reformed Seminary in Orlando. Um, and I, what I love about John Frame is that he is an ironic um, uh, reader of the Reformed tradition, that he, he operates within the Reformed tradition, but he also reads outside of it. Um, he also, um, whenever, you, whenever you read John Frame, you're going to be struck by how frequently he wrestles not just with the theological tradition, but with, with the scriptures themselves and just tries to really whatever he argues to really base from um, the scriptures, from exegesis of, of God's word. And so I think he's a really gifted um, thinker and writer. And so this book, it's called Doctrine of the Christian Life, is sort of his big book on the Christian, Christian ethics. And as historically has been the case, if you read how Christians have talked about ethics for the last 2,000 years, um, it's the bulk of this book is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So he's got, you know, a big chapter on each one of the commandments talking about their meaning. He interacts a lot with the Reformed tradition um, and the scriptures. So John Frame, Doctrine of the Christian Life, I would highly recommend that and really any of his books. If you, He's got a great book um, called Systematic Theology that would probably be one of my top recommendations if you're going to own a, a one-volume Systematic Theology. The one by Frame is awesome. Um, the other resource I'm going to use um, very frequently is, and we're going to use this together particularly, is the Westminster Standards, um, and especially the larger catechism. Um, so the larger catechism, um, if, you, if you read it, if you know it, you know that, uh, that uh, probably the biggest section of the larger catechism actually is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. And what I love that the catechism does is that it, it not only talks about 
what are the sins that are forbidden um, with each commandment? And, and many of the commandments, as you know, um, I've talked about this recently in sermons, are framed negatively, right? You shall no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not murder, etc. Um, so what the, the, the catechism does is, and this was written um, in the, the mid-1600s um, by a group of pastors and scholars and teachers um, and elders, um, what they do is, as they go through each commandment, they wrestle with not only what is this commandment forbidding, um, but also what is it requiring. So even the requirement, you know, the, the commandment do not murder is not only about, you know, just simply, you know, try not to kill people, you know? I mean, that, that's a good place to start, right? If we have not murdered anyone by the time we die, that's success on some level. But um, what the Westminster Larger Catechism wants to say is that there's a lot more to the Sixth Commandment than simply not, um, you know, killing anyone explicitly, directly, and really thinking through not only what is forbidden, um, but also what is required. And like one of the things that are required is, you know, you, is, is watching out for others and their safety and their life and trying to protect life, um, not only not take life. So just things like that. So the Westminster um, Larger Catechism is a resource we're going to be using a great deal as we walk through these commandments, um, partly because this is our tradition. This is the, the standard of our church. Um, all office bearers and pastors in our church um, are required to subscribe to the standards and affirm them as a faithful summary of the scripture's teaching. But also I think the Westminster standards are just a really rich resource um, for Christian teaching. That's why the catechisms were developed in the first place, were to instruct believers on what the scriptures taught in a question and answer kind of format. And so we're going to work through the Westminster Larger um, today, uh, or during these 12 weeks, as well as um, the standards themselves. Any questions about any of those, either of those resources? Anything? Very good. Everybody have a handout? Okay. So we're, I'm just going to talk today about the law of God, which kind of gives us a context for how to approach the Ten Commandments. So I think um, if you're a normal Christian, there may be some exceptions to this, but I think for most, at least modern Christians in the West, um, the law, like the scripture has all these different genres, right? We have narrative, um, poetry, uh, law, um, you know, different kinds of things. Um, the legal code of the scriptures is probably the most um, neglected area of the scriptures, right? People joke about it, right? You know, Bible plan, you know, Bible plan readings, you know, go to Leviticus to die, right? Um, everybody just sort of, you start at Genesis and then you just break down. Um, and, and that's, like, that's a joke because it, that has a ring of truth to it. Like, people, that's actually a lot of people's experience, right? You get to the story, the story's good in Genesis and first, you know, two-thirds of Exodus, basically, and then you just sort of get bogged down on all these details, all these laws, all these, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What's, what's the point here? So I think it's something that often today um, folks struggle with in the Western church is, is what is the point of the law and, and how do I read it? And, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. Part of it is just that it's, it's confusing. It's a different culture, it's a different context, and so some of the laws don't make much sense. Um, also, of course, some of the laws are typological, and so they don't, they don't have an obvious you know, sort of application to our lives. Um, there's also a lot of questions about the relevance of God's law today, right? Um, you know, this is such a different time and place. You know, what, how does it apply? What it, is it, does it even matter um, for our life today? Um, what God says in, um, the, in, the, in the first five books of the Bible where the legal code is found. 
um, you know, how do I apply it to my life? What is, what is the relevance of this? And so one of the things, of course, that we're going to be doing um, this fall um, is hopefully arguing for the relevance of the law um, to your life, um, that actually it matters, that actually it would be a great mistake um, for you just to say, well, the New Testament gives me everything I need to know how to live as a Christian. Um, I think that would be a, a deep misreading of the New Testament because what the New Testament writers are doing in reference to God's law is that they are applying it and explaining it and, and putting into practice in their lives um, and, and in the lives of their communities that they're leading. Um, they're, they are building on um, the law of God. They're not sort of wiping the slate clean um, when you come to the New Testament and, and just starting whole cloth with something new. Rather, um, all of the Hebrew scriptures and, and certainly the law of God is right there in the background for Jesus, for the apostles, for their teaching. So don't, don't go to the New Testament and say, this is all I need to know for my ethical life in the world in terms of what God calls me to. That's one of the things we'll be arguing. Actually, no, you need the Old Testament. You need the law. You need the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, and in many ways, we'll talk about this, in many ways, what Jesus does um, on the Sermon on the Mount, for example, is provide a divine commentary on the Ten Commandments, right? He's expanding the Ten Commandments um, and, and teaching, you know, what they, what they mean in, in their fullest expression, um, which is known through himself. And then you see that in um, the writer of the Apostles as well, as they wrestle with different aspects of the Ten Commandments and apply it in different ways. Um, it's clear that they're building on this tradition um, that matters for what they're trying to do in terms of um, um, live an ethical life um, with the people of God. So I want to start this morning by just kind of talking about what we believe regarding the law, because I think this is a really important part of coming to it. We have to understand what we're trying to do, what we expect when we come to the law of God. Um, and I want to do that using the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, which is, um, you know, the, the fundamental document that's part of our standards. The confession is just a straightforward articulation of what we as um, Reformed Presbyterians believe the scriptures teach. And then the shorter and larger catechisms, if you're not familiar with them, are sort of restating and expanding on those things in a question and answer format. Um, so the confession is just a straightforward articulation. This is what the Bible teaches about these different topics. And one of those topics that the, the Westminster Confession of Faith has a chapter on is the law of God, chapter 19. So you can see um, I've quoted several sections of that here. So the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 19.5, the chapter that's entitled Of the Law of God, so the fifth paragraph says this, The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it, neither doth Christ and the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation." Um, so a few comments here. One is um, that talks about the moral law um, there in that first um, sentence, the moral law. So the Westminster Standards draw what I think is a, it's not a perfect thing, but it's a, it's a helpful shorthand for talking about the law, that we can divide the law into three categories, um, civil, ceremonial, and moral. Um, so civil laws are laws that um, have um, uh, particular consequences, you know, um, for, you know, if you, if you you do this, this is what you need to do in response. You need to punish people in this way, that kind of thing. Or it can be laws like, um, you know, how, you know, how high the, the fence on your roof needs to be um, in order to, to be a good neighbor to your neighbors, um, those kinds of things. Or, um, you know, what you do with livestock, this kind of thing. Those would be more civil laws. 
Um, then you would have ceremonial law, which is, of course, much of the law that's found in Leviticus, um, about the ceremonies, the rituals, the sacrificial system, and how they are to go. And then you have the moral law. So we would say um, the moral law is everything else, um, everything that has to do with your ethical life, essentially, how you treat other people, how you, in summary, love God and love your neighbor, um, as Jesus summarizes the moral law um, in the New Testament. So as Reformed Christians, we would say that um, the civil law and the ceremonial law are fulfilled in Christ and, and abrogated. They're not, they're not things that we're bound to now um, in the same way. Now, this doesn't mean they're not important, and we should just skip them, right? We can just cut them out of the scriptures. That's not at all what we think. Um, actually, I think the civil law um, is a really fascinating thing that we should consider carefully, um, even in terms of our political debates, I would love for American political debates, um, and particularly for Christians, to actually be rooted in the political law of God, like the law that was given for Israel um, as a nation. We sh I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not arguing for a wooden application of um, the civil law in the Old Testament to today, but I am saying that there are remarkable, um, there's remarkable wisdom in thinking about how a nation should be structured and what kinds of laws should characterize its life in the civil law that was given to Israel. Um, do we think, I, th I mean, I think God knew what he was doing, right, when he set up Israel's life, and we should pay attention to that. Um, there's a wonderful book um, called The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses by Vern Poitras, um, who is actually one of Frame's really good buddies, um, that I would highly recommend as a way to sort of read the civil law. The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses is what it's called. And it just does a great job of really thinking through the principles that are there in the the civil law. For example, just, just something to think about, in the civil law of Israel, there was no such thing as imprisonment, right? I mean, just think about that. Like, think about how much of our civil law is rooted around the idea of imprisonment being a suitable um, punishment for those who break the law um, and who do bad things. And in, in Israel, that wasn't the case. Um, they had other ways. They had, um, you know, physical punishments, um, they had restitution that needed to be paid um, to, you know, there are there different ways of dealing with crime, essentially. And I think that's something that we should think deeply. I mean, I think one thing that pretty much everybody across the political spectrum agrees on today in America is that our prison system is broken, right? It's, it is not working. Um, and we can, you know, maybe there are disagreements on different sides about why it's not working. Um, from different political perspectives, but I think everybody who looks, takes a look at it says, whatever we're doing here is not actually, you know, producing the kind of effect we want in our society. Um, and so, which is interesting because it's not something that exists in God's law. Um, there's no category for, you know, if somebody commits a major crime, we're gonna lock them in a cage for 40 years. Like that, that doesn't exist in the law of God. That's just one example. There are many examples of why we should read the civil law and think about it wisely by the help of the Spirit in conversation with the tradition of the church throughout the ages and think about um, how we can apply these things today. Um, the ceremonial law also, of course, is very interesting and helpful, and we see this, and I mean, we're doing it in Hebrews in the sermon series that we've been working through, right? Um, a lot of reflection on the ceremonial law and its meaning and its how it points to Christ and the ways in which Jesus fulfills it. So it's valuable, too. But the moral law, we would argue, um, as the confession states here, is not abrogated, but actually forever binds all 
And that is important to say, that, that we believe that the moral law is binding not only for justified persons, um, so Christians, believers, but everyone is bound to obey the moral law of God. This actually is what sin is, right? Sin is not just things God doesn't like that aren't nice or whatever. No, sin in the Bible is clearly defined. It, it's found in the moral law. We know what sin is because we know what the moral law is. And so anyone who violates the moral law, um, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, um, is a sinner. And this is how we know what sin is. It's, it's a violation of one of the Ten Commandments in some way, or maybe multiple commandments, um, every sin that you commit. Um, so sin is not arbitrary. Um, it's actually something that's defined for us by God because he loves us. He wants us to understand what sin is and how dangerous it is. And so it's binding for everyone, we would argue. And, and this um, last sentence is important to note too. Um, Neither does Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation to keep the moral law. And that's really important to say, that in, in our tradition, um, from my perspective, um, our church's perspective, Jesus did not come um, to uh, create some kind of new law and to say, you guys don't need to worry about the old, co old covenant anymore, the Old Testament. Um, I just need to listen to me, you know. That is not what we believe Jesus did. And this, I say this because this is actually either implicitly or explicitly something that is taught widely, I think, in the American church today and actually is a substantial, I mean, I think many of the weaknesses in the American church today can be traced back to a lack of appreciation or respect for the Old Testament. I'll just say that. Like, I think that if American Christians read and lived in the Old Testament and actually took it seriously, many of the weaknesses of American Christianity would be addressed, um, you know, through the scriptures. Imagine that, right? Um, so if we have spiritual weaknesses, it might be because we're not reading the scriptures correctly. And I, I, I think that's a fairly good principle to think about. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, the American church, one of its major failures is its lack of regard and respect for the Old Testament, either implicitly or even explicitly. Um, for example, I said example of Andy Stanley here. Andy Stanley is a kind of, he's got a big platform. You know, people have heard of him. Um, he's a pastor in Georgia. Um, he's the son of Chuck Stanley. Um, and recently he came out with this bold statement that the Ten Commandments, and he said explicitly what maybe a lot of people think, the Ten Commandments are no longer binding. Um, the only thing that is binding is the law that Jesus taught, and Jesus said to love God and love your neighbor, and so that is now the new law um, that is what you need to do. Now, I agree with Andy in the sense that loving God and loving your neighbor is Jesus's summary of the moral law and Jesus's summary of the Ten Commandments specifically. And you can even sort, I mean, this doesn't work completely, but you can sort of think about the first four commandments being about loving God, although I think they all have to do with love of neighbor too. But the first four commandments we could say are about loving God, and then the last six are about loving your neighbor, right? Um, uh, we could think about it that way. Um, but anyway, so I sort of agree with on that point, but the idea, but the, here's the question, Andy, like, how do you know what it means to love your neighbor? Like, let's imagine, you know, like, like, would it be loving on your neighbor to cheat on your taxes and give that money to the poor? I mean, you could make that argument, right? Probably the poor need it more than the federal government does, um, you could argue. Um, you know, like, 
Uh, there's just all sorts of ethical scenarios, right, where you get yourself into, where you start, I mean, what if you are been married for 35 years and you actually realize you don't love your wife anymore and you love this other woman, you know? I mean, is that really loving to your wife to, to stay married to her? Um, and then there's this lonely woman that would benefit from your companionship, you know? Like, I mean, th this, these are the kind of moral calculus that people do, right, um, when they're making ethical decisions. And the, I think the problem is if you just say, well, the law is now to just love your neighbor and love God, well, who gets to say what is? I mean, essentially, you've reduced the law to your own subjective feelings about what's good and what's not good. Um, and, and I think they're all, there are a million problems with Andy saying, um, not least of that it, I think, leads into a kind of moral wilderness um, where, you know, everybody's just sort of making up. I mean, it's, it's I don't know. Yeah, everybody's just sort of making up what they want to do. You're in judges, essentially, is what I was about to say. I'll just say it. So, you know, everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, <laughs> essentially, is where you, I think you end up, ultimately, if you go down that path. And so, so that's just something to think about, like, that this, this idea, uh, we need God, as I say here, to define for us what it means to love him and to love others. Um, because we don't actually have that capacity to determine these things ourselves. Um, so, so those are a couple things to think about. I'll run through these proof texts, then I'll take any questions that there might be. Um, so proof texts that this, these are proof; these are not my proof texts. These are the proof texts that the standards give for this chapter 19:5, oh, this section 19:5 in the standards for what they're arguing. So they they reference Matthew 5, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says explicitly, "Don't think, in case you have the wrong idea, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but, but to fulfill them." Right? So we can say, I think, that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, by his own testimony, is actually a kind of divine commentary on the law of God and, a, and an explanation of how we are to keep the moral law um, through Jesus in union with him, in union with his obedience, in union with his righteousness. Um, as his spirit dwells in us, we are enabled to keep the moral law of God in ways um, that are perhaps new. Uh, I think we can say, um, and that's part of what is new in the new covenant. It's not that the moral law has changed or done away with, it's that we get to participate in keeping the moral law in a new way through the crucified and risen Christ. First um, John 2, um, John says, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Um, remember, John emphasizes again and again, right, the imperative and the epistles of John is love one another. He just says it again and again, love one another. Um, but he's saying explicitly, this isn't something that is new. This is the old commandment that you've had since the beginning. And it's important for us to say that, that sometimes we have this impression that the law of God is, in the Old Testament is just sort of, well, it's sort of rigid, you know, like it's sort of just legalistic or whatever. But that's not true, I don't believe. Um, that's not true at all. Actually, the Old Testament law was always about love of God and love of your neighbor. Actually, when Jesus quotes those two things or summarizes the Old Testament, he's quoting the Old Testament, right? Um, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6 when he says, love the Lord your God with all your strength, soul, heart, and mind. He's quoting from Leviticus 19 when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, these are direct quotations that come from the Old Testament. Um, and that is a, that's important to notice, right? That love, Jesus... Jesus didn't invent love as being the heart of the law um, in the Gospels. Like, Jesus did a lot of revolutionary things, but that was not one of them. Like, any Hebrew scholar 
um, you know, Jewish scholar in the first century understood that love was the heart of the law, love of God and love of your neighbor. Just, let's just, you know, not everything Jesus did necessarily was like, you know, something no one had ever thought of before. And that, like, that was a, people knew that. You know, if they, they had read the Old Testament, they understood. And maybe, certainly we could argue there's some ways in which the Pharisees and the scribes were um, undercutting that by things they were doing. And, you know, we could, there are problems there, yes, for sure. And Jesus was rightly restoring love in a prominent way. But, but anyone who read faithfully the Old Testament could have figured that out, right? Um, it didn't take Jesus to figure that out um, in terms of love being a faithful summary of the Old Testament law. Um, Romans 3, Paul says, then we, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says, by no means. If you know Paul, you know that by no means is like Paul's emphatic no. Like it's like no underlined and with exclamation points, right? He uses it in other places too. Um, whenever you think someone is getting the wrong idea by something he's been saying, this is what he says. He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Um, so uh, the Ten Commandments are a summary, in Paul's view, of the whole moral law, which is upheld in the New Covenant. And the New Covenant does not wipe away all that Paul's talking about in terms of faith and the righteousness that comes by faith and our union with Jesus and all these things. None of that undercuts the moral law of God. Any questions about that before we move on to this next section? Questions, thoughts? Take a drink of water. Yes, sir, Terry. Acts 15, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's happening there is that they're trying to talk about what does it mean for, not necessarily for um, Gentile Christians to live a fully ethical life, but what does it mean for them to come into the church and, and essentially respect Jewish practices that existed already. Um, and, and there, those things are more concerned, I would say, with, as we, if we want to think about the, that trifold division of the law with aspects of the ceremonial law, um, I would say. And, and I, don't, I, don't, you know, I don't know that they were setting sort of expectations from all time, you know, but they were dealing specifically with the contextual problem of we have all these Gentile Christians who, who are not circumcised, who are not, um, you know, used to anything in terms of the, the ceremonial rituals of the Jewish tradition. We have all these Jewish Christians who have been doing these things since they were children. How do we have them live together with one another? That's, what, that's how I would understand Acts 15. And they're saying these are the important things from the ceremonial law that you need to continue. And, and of course, notice that um, the big thing that's missing there, right, is circumcision. Right. They don't say you need to be circumcised in order to be a faithful Christian. Um, but there, those other things all, I think, have reference to um, aspects of the ceremonial law. I don't, I don't think what they're doing there is saying this is everything that the Christian life requires. I actually think they would expect um, Gentile Christians to read the Old Testament and to understand it as their scriptures, um, which it is. Um, I was in a situation once with a Jewish rabbi who was 
just sort of is there are a lot of Christian pastors there and he was just sort of um, talking about in a kind of annoyed way um, how Christians have co-opted the the Jewish scriptures basically and and basically saying these aren't yours these are mine basically what he was saying he's trying to be nice about it but that's what he was saying and for the last 2,000 years that's just not how Christians have thought about the Hebrew scriptures right actually no they're they're ours actually um and they're ours in a deeper way than they're yours. They're actually Christian scriptures um, because they speak about the Christ and he's come and he fulfills them and he explains them. And really, that's what the New Testament is doing. The New Testament, this is why the Old Testament is so important. The New Testament is basically a commentary in the Old Testament, right? I mean, that's what the New Testament is. Um, and if we're going to, you know, we can't just read the commentary, you know, we need to read the, the actual source text too. Um, and so that's, I don't know, anyway, that's sort of an answer to your question, but yeah. That's, I think that's a great question, Chair. That's a very practical, what about Acts 15 question? Yep. Jeremy. Yes. Absolutely. He's demonstrating for us. A demonstration. Yeah, that's a great point. I appreciate bringing that up. Yeah, so in case you didn't hear Jeremy's comment, um, he's saying that the, the New Testament writers are not only comment, be providing a commentary in the Old Testament, they're also demonstrating how to read the Old Testament. And what's fascinating about that is that they read it in very way, in ways that are not we're not accustomed to reading it as modern people. Um, if you know anything about the history of biblical interpretation over the years, you'll know that the last 150 years or so have been dominated by what is called the grammatical historical approach, which is basically saying, we need to understand very carefully the context and the original intention of the writer and when it was written, and there can't really be any meanings outside of that meaning, what it meant to them, as far as we can reconstruct it, essentially. Um, but the fascinating thing about, I mean, I understand, and I, you know, I have training in, the, in that tradition, certainly. Um, you know, it's basically what all modern seminaries are using, um, at least in the, the Reformed um, sort of evangelical tradition. Um, but I think we have to honestly say what Jeremy is saying, that's not really how the apostles actually read the Old Testament a lot of times. You know, Matthew has, I mean, yeah, Matthew has no problem, you know, telling the story of Jesus and uh, applying the words of Hosea, right, when Jesus comes out of Egypt, um, back to, he says, and this was a fulfillment of what the prophet Hosea said, out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, that, I mean, that doesn't work if you're really thinking literally about what Hosea was talking about. He's talking about the Exodus, right? Um, and so Matthew was doing something there that I think is actually, like Jeremy's saying, not just a commentary on Hosea, but actually showing us how we are supposed to read um, the Old Testament. And I, I think it would be fascinating one day, I'd love to teach a class that would really look carefully at the way that Jesus and the apostles interpret and apply the Old Testament, because I think it would be, and you know where you do find this kind of tradition, 
it's in the patristics, it's in the medieval church. Um, there is a rich, rich history of Christians reading the Bible in ways that are consistent with how Jesus and the apostles read the Bible. And I think this is one of the reasons why, as Reformed people, we need to be very careful not to pretend like church history started in, you know, 1517 or whatever. Um, that would, that's a major mistake. Um, uh, we, you know, I see the Protestant Reformed tradition as the actual continuation of, right, um, Augustine and um, all, you know, all the people of faithful um, theologians um, of the ancient and medieval churches. Um, and and we, we definitely don't want to, yeah, we just need to, I appreciate that. That's, that's a great point, Jeremy. All right, let me, let me continue to move on here as we try to work our way through here. So um, Westminster 19.6 is also really important as we think about how we approach God's law. Although believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others. And that as, and I italicize this, as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with the clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. So basically, 19.6 is answering, like 19.5 is saying, the moral law is binding on you, in summary. 19.6 is saying, here's what the moral law is for, particularly if you're a Christian. Now it's saying, first of all, you're not under a covenant of works. Um, you're not keeping the law as a way to earn your salvation. Let's put that aside. But it is still great use to you, even though it's not a means by which you earn your salvation or God's love for you. Because it is a rule of life which informs you of the will of God and your duty and directs and binds you to walk in this way. So it actually, this is what we would, this often in Reformed theology, this is referred to as the, the quote-unquote third use of the law. You may have heard it referred to that way before. Basically saying that the law is good for you in the sense that it tells you how to live. I mean, that's an, a remarkable thing, right? I mean, in some ways, this is the question all of us are asking. Like, how do I live in this world? How do I make ethical decisions? Like, all of us, and we should think about this, are making ethical decisions every day. Like, constantly. That's what you're doing. You're making ethical decisions. You're deciding between two things, and which is better, which is best, um, which is worse, um, which should be avoided. I mean, you're just constantly throughout your day um, making ethical decisions as you interact um, with other people, as you think about how you're going to use your time, as you think about how you're going to spend your money, as you think about, you know, just everything that you do involves ethical, like weighing what is a virtuous way to live, what is a good way to live. Um, all of us are driven by this. All of us have some idea of, you know, what is good that we are pursuing, I mean, unless Unless we're like literally, you know, don't aren't you know have, are mentally ill and can't make those connections, um, all of us, I mean, we may not be perfectly consistent about it, but all of us have some idea of the good that is determining our actions during the every day of our life. And what we want to say as Reformed believers, as Protestant believers, is that you do not, you are not very good at that, actually, on your own. What you think is good is often not good, and it's actually selfish. 
um, what you think is good is actually, you know, like what you think is bad is sometimes really good. Um, like on your own, you are not going to do a good job of being an ethical, virtuous person, which is your task, right, in life. And you, you are becoming that person or not every day of your life. So what we're saying is that you actually need help. Like you need someone to tell you what it is to live an ethical and virtuous and good life. And what the standards are saying and what I am saying is that you need God to tell you that because you don't have the capacity for it in yourself. And you'll actually be very confused if you try to do it on your own. And it will be actually disastrous um, for you and for others around you. And so we need the law of God, essentially, is what this is saying, in order to know what is good and true and beautiful so that we can try to order our life around those things. Um, it is, this is part of why it's called a light, right? <laughs> that lights our way uh, through the darkness. Um, that darkness is not just the evil world around us, but it's the darkness of our own hearts and our own knowledge, right? The word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and that we need because we don't have the capacity for illumination on our own. Um, so that's one aspect of the goodness, the usefulness of the law. It says also, it says, and I love that word, rule of life. It's a rule of life. It's a, it's a way of living that we learn to submit to, um, even if we don't fully understand it all the time, right? Um, it's something, it's a, it's a rule of life that we bend ourselves to as we understand it better and better. And this is one of the reasons for doing what we're doing this fall is, to study God's law so that we really think about it. We really think about those ethical decisions and what God's law actually teaches about how to love our neighbor and how to love him. Um, because it's not just this ambiguous thing that we're supposed to figure out, you know, um, on the fly. God has actually described for us what it is to love him and to love our neighbors. And we should pay attention to that. Um, it also, the, another use of the law, the standards say, is um, it, is it helps us discover the sinful pollutions of our nature, our hearts, and our lives, so that examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. So this is another use of the law. It tells you you're a sinner. And it doesn't, doesn't, does, doesn't just tell you you're a sinner. It says, this is how you sin. The, the reality, I think, for many of us is that we don't really understand our sin. I mean, how could we? We don't understand what it, righteousness is in and of ourselves unless God tells us. And so what the argument basically is you need the law of God not only to know how to live, the ideal that you're supposed to be conforming your life to, you also need to know God's law in order to understand how you fall short and how you don't keep it consistently. Um, and how you don't love your neighbor, how you don't love God. Um, I think it's just, a, it's just a matter of wisdom to say that we only repent of the sins that we are aware of, right? Um, if you are blind to a particular sin in your life, you are not going to repent of it. You're, I mean, you're not even going to confess it probably, right? Um, this is part of why we often <laughs> say we're in our liturgy on Sunday mornings, um, you know, forgive me all my sins, known and unknown, right? <laughs> to say that, there are things I am doing that I'm not even aware of that are heinous to you, God. And I just need to say that um, and ask that you would forgive me those things because I don't know, like that's what we mean by n unknown. Like not just you've forgotten them, but like you weren't even aware of it when you were doing it, that this was a sin. This was something that God hates. Uh, you thought it was fine. 
Um, so that, that's what we need the law for too, our standards say. We need to have the law to help teach us what actually is sinful and the ways in which we sin. Um, and this is true in the Christian life. I think as you grow as a Christian, um, you know, when you, um, as you, as you grow in your life as a Christian over the decades, I do believe that you should be sinning less because I think sanctification is a thing that the scripture teaches and that the spirit should be working righteousness in you. And so you should be living more righteously and less wickedly over your life as a Christian. I want to say that clearly. There should be a trajectory. If there's not a trajectory, like you should ask some questions about that and talk to your pastor. You know, just let's talk about that if you're not seeing that trajectory. But the interesting thing about the trajectory is that you actually realize more of your sin. Like you're sinning less, you're living more righteously, but you're actually more aware of your status as a sinner because you're, as you grow spiritually, you actually become more aware of the things that you did that were wrong and how you need to grow. And so I, I think this is, the, this is, and the law of God is part of this, that as you grow in your knowledge of the law of God, you understand your sin more deeply, even, even as you're actually becoming more righteous. I think that is how we should think about the Christian life, just sort of a shorthand. Um, you know, we, we, we sin less over time, but we are more aware of our sin than we were when we started. And in some ways, that's a great gift, right? If somehow, when we first became believers, we understood all of our immaturities and our sins, I mean, it would just be, you know, terrible. Like, we would despair. <laughs> so you, gotta, you have to be exposed to them slowly over time um, when you're ready for them, um, the extent of your of your sinfulness. And all of this, as the, the standards say, should make us convicted and humiliated um, in a right kind of way and hate our sin um, and also have a clear sight of our need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. So this is another benefit of reading the law is that you understand better that you need Jesus and what it is that Jesus actually did for you. How Jesus, and of course the gospels are, right, the demonstrated life of Jesus is the perfect commentary on the law of God because he kept all of it. He kept it perfectly. He kept it fully. Um, and so we see in the life of Jesus what obedience actually looks like, what, what God was talking about when he spoke the ten words, the ten commandments, is embodied in the life of Jesus. Um, there's, there's more here um, that I uh, would affirm to you. Um, you know, we, we do not see in... Reformed theology, a strong antithesis between law and gospel. That's something to say. Uh, we think the law is good. Um, our standards say in chapter 7 there, you can see, um, sometimes you might have heard this, right? You know, Lutherans read the scriptures often this way, and it's influenced other traditions of the church that, you know, part of, you know, a half the scripture is law and half is gospel. And you have to figure out which passage is which. And the law, parts of the law, are, they're just there to make you feel bad about yourself. So you can read the parts that are gospel and feel and know that God loves you. Um, so we would say, you know, there, yeah, it's sort of like there's some truth to that a little bit, but like that's not actually a great hermeneutic, I would say. Reformed tradition generally would say, Calvin would say. Um, that's not actually a great hermeneutic to like try to push everything the Bible through. Um, actually, as the chapter 7 says, the aforementioned uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but actually sweetly comply with it. Um, so there's no contradiction, there's no conflict between law and gospel in the scriptures. Um, 
there's gospel in the law. There's, dare I say it, friends, law in the gospel, right? Paul, talk, has, Paul has no problem talking about the obedience of faith as being something that we are called to do. The obedience of faith, right? Like we, we have to be able to say that there, there's gospel in the law and there is law in the gospel. Um, and, and that's okay to talk about. That's not, that doesn't undermine salvation by faith alone, all those kinds of things, which obviously I affirm. Um, but it's also true that the, fa- the gospel has implications, moral implications for our lives um, that we must give attention to. Um, certainly that's a lot of what Paul talks about um, as he's trying to work through what the scriptures teach. So finally, I just want to end with this, and there's other things you can read in this handout. And I'm going to try, at least when I teach, to produce kind of substantial handouts for you that you can take and study um, and think about if you want to. We're probably never going to cover everything because of just how this goes. Um, but the psalmist, just think about how the psalmist talks about the law of God. And I've just picked three psalms here. There are others we could look at. Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now he's talking about the scriptures there, certainly, but he's also talking specifically about the law. I think that's just fascinating. Like, who talks this way about the law these days? And why don't we? And should we? I mean, obviously, I want to argue that we should. That we should delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Right, not just the the gospels or the narrative sections, but the precepts of the Lord are right and rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. Right? That's not legalism, friends. That's, that's biblical. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by your commandments, by your law, is your servant warned, and in keeping them is their great reward. And then finally, Psalm 19, 119, which is really the, lo- it's the longest psalm by far in the Psalter. And basically, the whole thing is about how awesome the law of God is. Like he just says it over and over again. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandment, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. All right, friends. Thankful for this time we've had together. I'm here. Um, I can talk for a minute or two before I need to get ready for worship. I want to give you time to fellowship and uh, to pick up your kids if you need to do that, if you're in that category. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the way in which um, your law is good for us. And Father, I pray as we study the Ten Commandments um, this fall that that would be the approach that we would have, that we would come ready to delight in what you have for us, in the instruction of your word, your commandments that describe for us um, how it is that we are to live, how it is that we are to love you and to love one another. And uh, I pray, Father, um, for your spirit to abide with us and to give us great wisdom as we talk about these things. Father, we need it. We know that we are um, not in ourselves able 
um, even to interpret and understand your law, but we need the illumination and help of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray for that, Father, even this fall. And I pray for good reflection on the things we've talked about today, um, where there are things that have been challenging, that um, we'd be able to think about those things carefully in our own approach to your word and to your law specifically. And I pray, Father, just for growth for us as a church as we think through all these things together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right.